1: Off
2: the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to Off the Record. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. Today we're continuing our Labyrinth Week celebration, honoring David Bowie's unforgettable star turn as Jareth, the baby-abducting Goblin King. My guest today is a puppeteer who performed several characters in the film. He's one of the two-headed guards that Jennifer Connelly's character outmaneuvers with logic, He's also one of the fiery figures in the chili Down dance sequence, the one who gets his head kicked around like a soccer ball. And my favorite, he was Ambrosius, the trusty dog of Sir Didymus. But these roles, as impressive as they are, are just a minuscule part of his resume. This gentleman's name is Steve Whitmire, and if you know anything about Muppet history, that's all I need to say. I know I toss around the word legend a little too freely, but in this case, there's no other word for it. His work was a huge part of my childhood, and probably yours as well. For 26 years, he was the voice and soul of Kermit the Frog, not to mention Ernie of Bert and Ernie fame, Rizzo the Rat, Bean Bunny, Wembley Fraggle, Statler of Statler and Waldorf fame, the list goes on and on. His story is so genuinely inspiring to me. Steve grew up loving puppetry, especially Jim Henson's Muppets. After hosting a kid's cable show in his native Atlanta with his puppet Otis, he was invited to audition for his hero. This led to years working alongside Henson on all manner of projects – The Muppet Show, Fraggle Rock, The Dark Crystal, and of course Labyrinth. After Henson's death in 1990, Steve was absolutely gutted. His mentor was gone. And then he got the news that Jim had handpicked him to carry on his signature character, Kermit. Up to that point, Henson had been the only person to ever perform as our favorite amphibian. Now, put this in your own terms. Say you're a massive Rolling Stones fan, and you find out that Mick Jagger has chosen you to step into his platforms and front the band. Imagine that incredibly potent mix of excitement, ecstasy, and sheer terror. Steve obviously excelled at the role. He did it from 1990 to 2016. For 80s babies like me, he is Kermit. Sesame Street, Muppets Christmas Carol, Muppets Treasure Island, it's all him. And now he's creating new characters in his web-based series Cave-In, where he voices the hilariously crabby Weldon the IT guy. It was an honor to speak with Steve about Muppets, the cosmic philosophy of puppetry, whether or not it's actually easy being green, And of course, his unforgettable encounters with Bowie on the set of *Labyrinth*. Enjoy. To start, sort of at the beginning, well, how did all this begin for you? You were were ten when *Sesame Street* began, and you wrote a letter.
3: That's correct. I uh, I was ten years old in uh, 1968. I had been a Muppet fan for a very long time prior to that, but the Muppets were really prior to Sesame Street, were kind of almost just a, an act that went on variety shows. You know, they didn't have their own show and stuff like that. And so it was a matter of waiting until they were going to be on, you know, The Tonight Show or something like that to get to get the chance to see them. And when Sesame Street happened, suddenly the Muppets were on TV every single day. And I was just at that right age to get, you know, really obsessed and become a, a quite a fan of it. Uh, I started trying to build my own puppets and all that sort of thing. And I, you know, a Rocky start with that. It's not an easy thing to do. And so I ended up writing that letter to Jim Henson. And a few months later, he actually wrote back to me, which was amazing. Now that I look back at it, you know, it seems kind of unlikely and surprising, uh, you know, at a time when there was no social media and it really was, you know, a letter with a stamp on it <laughs> to get a letter back from Jim was pretty special. And, he directed me to some simple Muppet patterns that he had published in, I think, a Woman's Day magazine some years before, super, super simple, as a way for me to start making puppets. So that was really what started me. And once I started doing that and learning how to do that, I started adding a little inch here or a little shape there and and started fiddling around with making different shapes and making my own puppets as well. But my initial thing was to try and copy every character that Jim had done, from Kermit to Ernie to Bert to everybody on Sesame Street.
2: <laughs> and I think I read that your friends in high school were calling you Kermit. Like, this almost seems faded in a way.
3: Well, <laughs> that's true. They did. Mostly because I had my, my pretty, actually pretty poor uh, Kermit puppet that I'd made, uh, by comparison to the real one, of course. But whenever there were school talent shows or choral recitals or things like that, I took every opportunity I could to be on stage doing something, not me personally, I was hiding, of course, I was in a puppet stage, but to have a, um, an opportunity to do something with puppets for my classmates and stuff like that. So I ended up using Kermit quite a lot, the not very good version of Kermit I was probably doing at the time, but it did gain me the nickname. <laughs>
2: <laughs> You're working on this this television show in Atlanta, the kids' show with Otis, and the kids all through town they're calling in they're talking to you i mean the thing that always boggles my mind about your work is how much improv is involved especially for something like that i mean not only are you giving a performance with your body and doing the voice and doing the vocal work but then you have to be that quick to like think of what the character would say to these kids i mean how do you learn that i bet you it's something that you don't learn it's just something that <laughs> that's you're kind of born with
3: it's a funny thing i don't know exactly how you learn it um because it's something i always did i mean i I'm a pretty good improv person when it comes to doing characters that I know quite well. Once I know a character, once I've done a character for a while, then it's very natural to play in that character's voice. I'm less good at straight improv. I, you know, I don't do that quite as well. But if I know the character, I can carry on a conversation indefinitely, and that really is what I was doing back in the late '70s. What you know, as I was graduating high school and doing that first show. You know, it was more than two hours a day on the air live and taking these phone calls. So we had to fill a lot of time with a lot of, you know, a lot of of talk. And I I never gave it a second thought. I just sort of did it. So to say how you learn that, I think you just, you you do it.
2: Going at the deep end.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You just jump in and and do it. And it really was always, throughout my career, it's been my favorite thing to do, no matter which character, whether it would be Rizzo the Rat or Kermit the Frog or whoever. It's always been my favorite thing to do is is just to have the opportunity to carry on a conversation in character is is just great fun. I mean, this is
2: probably a a, a funny question. Where do you go during that? Do you, are you very present and and where, or do you almost kind of like, I I talk to a lot of musicians and they say that when they're on stage playing solos, they don't know where they go. They just kind of go away and they're not there and just sort of the, the music takes over. Is that what it's like for you when you're playing a character?
3: You know, it's funny that you should put it that way because I can imagine. I've I'm uh, I'm sort of not a great accomplished musician, but I've done a little bit of music as well, and that can happen, you know. And and there is a similarity. I think it might be true with many many artistic pursuits. Frankly, you know, Mm. you know, it's odd. It's hard to describe. You know, we watch what we're doing on a monitor as we work, so we're seeing our work as the audience will see it. And I got to a point where I was looking. At Kermit on the screen and not thinking about it anymore. It it was almost as though I retracted from anything that I was conscious of doing and began to just witness it, just to watch it as though I were an audience member. And there were plenty of times, I mean, a lot of times, still are, when I would drift off into that character and not even think about what that character was going to say next. And, and honestly, quite often be surprised by it. <laughs> Very removed from being the character and really more watching the character just come out and evolve and kind of channel through you. you know? And I'm sure it's the same way with musicians. You know,
2: That is incredible. I mean, it really does. It, it, it's alive. It takes on a, a life of, of, of its own.
3: It really does. And to me, that is the key to whenever the Muppets have done something successful and their connection to the audience was always about that sort of believability you know they were just as much there and alive as the people as a human actor or, or you know talk show host or whatever that they were speaking with just absolutely key and unfortunately i think that's a little bit missing these days uh <laughs> they're not quite as strong as they might have once been but but that's a lot of it. it the character is such a deeply ingrained character and we all know that character when we see it And it's very important that that stay that way for that connection to exist.
2: Yeah, there there are things that the character will and will not do, choices they will and will not make, and yeah, it's it's funny that that is to actually know that character as a real person is definitely fascinating to me. I guess my, my question to you, in sort of a broad sense, is is there one thing that separates good puppet performers? From from the great, is there is there one thing that you can that you can articulate, or is it a series of many 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 small things that are honed over time?
3: You know, it's hard to put my finger on one particular thing. I think it's a lot of stuff. It's really interesting when I and I don't mean to be critical of anybody's art. I mean, I think people progress at different stages. You learn. Everybody starts at square one, and you learn through this process. You know, whether you're a musician, whether you're a puppeteer, whether you're an actor, whether you're an artist, a painter, whatever. It's interesting, when I look at the a lot of the puppetry that's out there these days, it tends to appear to be a lot like what we were doing back in about 1980. You know, it, it hasn't progressed a great deal in terms of what it is that people are doing in many, many cases. And that's just a matter of time and learning and what style a person wants to do. In my opinion, what always helped me to be the best I could be with puppeteering and and performing these characters is to put them first. Mm. It really was a matter of looking at those characters as though they were living, breathing entities in the world. The minute they become a character franchise, You've kind of lost the point, you know, from the point of view of the people who are producing the material for these characters, they need to be their point of view and their sensibility and the group dynamic of the group of characters needs to be the focus through which you look at everything you do. I guess going back a little further,
2: how did you go from being, you know, a a, a teenager with, with your own homemade Kermit to actually working with Jim Henson, how did you, you first cross paths? I understand it, you, you met Carol Spinney, who is legendary performer, Big Bird, uh, Oscar the Grouch. How did you, you first uh, enter the, the Muppets orbit?
3: That's exactly how it began. I, um, I'm from Atlanta originally. I still live here. And I'd never heard of these things, but there was this puppetry festival, this gathering of puppeteers taking place in Atlanta. And I heard about it and decided to go because I thought it'd be fun to meet carol you know someone who worked with the Muppets, and i was about i guess i was 17 or 18 and it hadn't really clicked for me that i would be considered for a job I mean, i didn't go for that purpose i just wanted to meet someone who worked with the Muppets. It just you know and so i met him and, and i was, happened to be the only person at this festival who at that point in time was actually doing muppet like puppets muppet style puppets the puppets i had created of my own look I like that same style. So I spent the weekend, this was a weekend-long thing, with Carol and his wife, Debbie. We exchanged contact info, but I, I didn't necessarily expect to ever hear from him again. And about four months later, he called and said Jim was looking for new puppeteers for Sesame Street at the time. He was, he was shooting The Muppet Show, but he was looking for new Sesame Street performers and thought I should audition. So what that led to was was eventually – ending up in new york with jim who called me and invited me to come up and spend a few days with him and jim's idea of an audition was to spend about i don't know maybe an hour with puppets on our hands and the rest of the week was spent sitting around talking and getting to know each other he really wanted to know whether and I, you know I was very young I, I can only imagine what that must have been like and whether i was someone that he felt would fit in with his group of people uh, so that that interpersonal kind of you know, connection between the group was super important to him.
2: Yeah, what, what was he like as, as a person?
3: Well, he was, I think one of the best ways to put it might be to say he was an integral thinker. He was someone who seemed to have a pretty good grasp on seeing a situation from multiple points of view and multiple angles. And he was quite a collaborator. He had a great organizational sense in terms of bringing the right people in for the right projects. And he would meet someone in the course of life or, or, you know, whatever. And he would maybe not work with that person for four or five years, and, but he would remember them. And he would have this thought in mind that, oh, you know, our, this person I met would be perfect for this project. So he's really, really astute at making those kinds of calls on people, you know, stuff like that. And just a terrific person to work with. I always say that I, I don't feel like I worked for Jim. I feel like I worked with him, um, which was really, really special
2: that's funny because I speaking to many of, uh, of of David Bowie's colleagues and friends they all said something similar about him is that he he was so good at at sort of this almost social alchemy in a way like he, he would he knew how to put a team together and even if it, it could be years down the road he would remember people and think oh that person would be perfect for, for doing X, Y, Z. And, and that's why whatever he was involved with was so good was that he brought in people, didn't tell them what to do, let them be themselves and bring their most authentic gifts to the project. And that was, uh, that was really special.
3: Yeah. Jim, Jim was a bit like that. He would come in with a vision and an idea, quite happy for everyone to have their particular input in that project you know he was the final arbiter of what we actually did and didn't do, but more often than not he he gave us an enormous amount of freedom just to add our you know our, our thing to whatever it was we were doing. at what point
2: did David get involved with with jim for the uh, for the labyrinth projects? I know it sounds like that had a long gestation period.
3: yeah, you know I can't give you a, a definite answer on that. I'm not quite sure. I do know that when he began talking about labyrinth. And sort of sharing it with us. He had been working on it for a little while at that point. And when I say us, I mean the puppeteers. You know, I remember a particular conversation. We were in Toronto working on some other work, and he said um, something. To, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said there were a couple of people he was looking at for the role of Jared. One of them was David Bowie, and the other was Sting. I remember very distinctly having a conversation with him where I said, well, you know, I, I think Sting is amazing, but I sure hope you go with David Bowie if he's willing to do it. Hmm. And Jim said, no, no, I, I hope so too. And, uh, you know, it's a matter of whether he he's he's going to be interested or not. You know, that was pre-asking, I think, or pre-getting an answer. But I was, I mean, I was just a massive fan of David Bowie from the time I was in high school. You know, Ziggy Stardust was, uh, that, that whole album was just a trademark time i mean it was just it was the music that i did in my high school rock bands, you know so it was a very big deal very big deal to me to have the chance to meet him and work with him
2: <laughs> oh man I, I can only imagine i mean, when did you first meet you know i have
3: a few embarrassing moments in my life this is one of them <laughs> <laughs> before we started shooting uh we were rehearsing some things we were there for maybe a week before the shooting began and um Jim decided to have a gathering at his house in Hempstead. We all go in, Bowie, David Bowie going to be there. Jennifer Connelly was there, the cast, you know, the the main producers and people and, you know, all of us puppeteers. And I, I remember we were sort of standing in the full circle of people. And I was one of a handful of people who was introduced to David. He was very gracious and, and kind of quiet, you know, and and, 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 you know, very nice to meet you kind of thing. After a moment, I said, you're going to have to, I was very young as well. You're going to have to forgive me just a little bit if throughout the first couple of weeks we're shooting together, if you catch me staring at you, I don't mean anything by it. I'm just such a massive fan. <laughs> and he, oh, that's nice. he smiled, but he also took a step back. <laughs> <laughs> and I remembered it. Okay. And, and then shortly after he accused himself. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I've blown it. I have. I have made a complete fool of myself in front of one of my heroes with this fanboy thing, and now I'll, how can I go in and work with him? You know, so, <laughs> so that was actually the first meeting, and then we go in and begin the work. You know, we're working on labors, working every day, and it seemed fine. We were working okay, but one day, for some reason, so we go we go to the dailies every day. They you know we see the work we did the day before. We're leaving the Daily Theater. I'm, working, I'm walking back to my dressing room with a, hand, a handful of puppeteers. We're all going to gather our stuff to go home. And somebody ran up behind me and put, you know, like you might run up behind somebody, put both hands on their shoulders and kind of jump off the ground and really press on their shoulders for a second, you know, just to sneak up on them. Yeah. It was David Bowie. <laughs> and I had absolute, I, I don't know why in that moment he chose me. But he came to me, put hands on my shoulders, look, you know, with all the other puppeteers and said, hey, I'm going. He still has makeup on from the day as as the character. He said, I got to go up and get all this makeup off. Why don't you come up and we'll sit around and talk for a while. And I was flabbergasted. I don't know why he chose me in that moment, but he did. So that's exactly what we did. So I didn't drive in the UK at that point because I had never driven. I was a little bit afraid to be on the other side of the road. So I, I didn't have a car. My one way to get home was that every day they sent a mini cab for me, like a little car that this guy would drive me home. And we're working in Elstree, which was quite a distance from where I was staying. So, you know, I had like one shot to get home. So if I didn't leave right then, I, I remember the very first thought in my mind was. Oh my God! how am I going to get home? <laughs> I'm sleeping here yeah, and and then I thought, well, it would be worth it to sleep here so so anyway, he you know, so I go up I follow him up to the to the makeup lady who's working on taking the makeup off, we sat around for probably two hours or so, and just talked about everything under the sun that we could think of, I could think of to talk to David Bowie about things like at the time, Prince was incredibly popular, height of purple rain, popularity. We talked about prints, And then somehow we got around to the topic of the fact that I had gone out and bought my own little recording, you know, home recording studio and my, you know, Yamaha DX7 synthesizer, which was hmm. a big deal at the time, you know, and and he said, oh, do you have any of your music here? And I did. And he said, oh, go get it. I got to hear it. So I got to play my music for what it's worth <laughs> for David Bowie, oh my who God. was extremely encouraging and extremely enthusiastic about it which was a really big deal for me and he complimented me on it you know i mean like like it seemed very like sincere compliments i don't think he would have done that just to be nice you know he wouldn't have said anything bad but he also wouldn't have gone out of his way to say well that's that's really quite good you know he wanted to know the lyrics he really was in tune to it so that was a a very big deal for me and then i as as i recall the um The woman who was doing the makeup actually gave me a ride home, so I didn't get stuck there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, this sounds
2: like a top three, maybe even top two life moment ever. I
3: mean, good Lord, that's incredible. It was a pretty big deal. And, uh, you know, obviously I will never forget that, how nice and gracious he was to me. And, of course, then we worked on set and had a great time. You know, these silly characters that we were doing together, playing alongside him when he was singing. Just a wonderful guy. And I I was very surprised. And then, you know, I ran into him a couple of times after that, just because of the connection. I was able to get tickets to a a concert or two and I got to pop backstage and say hello, you know, things like that. But that was really my moment was that evening when he decided he was going to spend some time with me, you know, for whatever reason. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I mean he probably remembered what you said to him the first time he met and that was like that was the moment he had, he, he had the time
3: I guess. I you know wow. maybe so maybe so we had spoken briefly on the set just in the course of working but it was really about the work. So yeah who knows. <laughs>
2: That is amazing. Oh, man. I mean, that, that, that shoot, it seems like a re- an incredibly hard, arduous shoot, but also looks like a really fun shoot. Did, did David have a, a good sense of humor?
3: Yeah, I think he did. And I think he had to, to deal with this because, yeah, it was, a, it was a complicated shoot. I mean, he's a, he's a professional. He's used to working in a, in a set and, you know, he knows what it's like to work on a film. But sometimes our, our things that we would do with these mass scenes of puppets, it takes a long time to set them up. It takes a long time to get them working. You've got so many characters working out at the same time. And Jim's trying to coordinate those characters to do things because it was all practical effects at that point, you know. So everything had to work in camera. So, yeah, you know, a very patient guy. And, but just always a good sense of humor. And, I, you know, I, he always seemed to be enjoying himself, which was terrific. What was the, uh,
2: the the trickiest scene for you to shoot? Was it the, the chilly down scene?
3: That's a pretty good uh, estimate on the hardest thing we did. Yeah. Because it was um, it, early days of computer controlled cameras, you know, trying to, to match these shots over and over again with cameras that, that tried to do the same motion. And, and you look at it now and you can kind of see this little halo around all the characters, you know, it's pretty crude by today's special effects standards. But I, I did the, the, the the guy who was the one whose head comes off and gets kicked across the room and stuff like that. (laughs) So I was, I I, I was doing the head of that character, which means you've got, I don't know how many, maybe 15, 20 puppeteers all dressed in black clothing with these hoods on. So we can hardly see running through a black set that was kind of slippery. And so real time, you know, they had to, My that head had to fly across the room as though it had been kicked or hit, you know, or whatever that was about. So I'm running through space trying to make this head fly across, you know? <laughs> the choreography for that just is absolutely
2: stunning. And I can't get over it, because in, in addition to the physical demands of the character, You also have to deliver a performance, too, which is the thing that I can't wrap my mind around doing all of those things all at once. That's unbelievable to me.
3: It's a lot to think about sometimes, yeah. Especially when it says choreographed and blocked as that. That was done by a guy named Charles Augens, who I think he's still around, but he was a very talented dancer and and choreographer, and we all worked with Charles to figure this out. But it was a great coordination effort, you know, um, three or four people per character trying to do that thing.
2: Now, did you have any choice over which characters that that you were playing i mean if because obviously there were just so many, or was it really just like, hey, you can you grab one of these one of these goblins right now? we need to get forty five people in the castle right now we need everybody we can get, or did you get to sort of pick and choose like being one of the guards or
3: well jim jim uh chose which one of those guards i was i was one of the four heads, and he chose uh, uh would you say guards I'm talking about the guys who were the the top and the bottom of the doors, you know, there were four guys who, when, when she chooses which door to go through. Almost like with playing cards, almost. Yeah, and Jim chose who would do which one of those. Just I don't know whether he had specific reasons for choosing. He just made a choice, the four of us who did that. I think when it came to the goblins, I probably had some free reign on that, although they sort of had their goblins that were going to put in the front. And, uh, you know, I did one of those guys. And I remember choosing, the one I loved was this little guy with a flat head with a long skinny nose. And I loved that character. That puppet was such a great puppet. So I, I may have rushed in and grabbed that guy because I loved him so much, you know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, is there, aside from your your moment, your private moment with David, do you have any favorite moments from, from on the set? Anything stick out?
3: Oh, wow. You know, it's a little hard for me to remember a lot of that. Um, what I really recall is, the camaraderie of this massive project coming together. And Jim was obviously very busy and distracted, but he always kept a good humor and had a moment to smile. One of my favorite things is that no movie would allow you to do this these days. Jim always loved it when I would bring, like my um, early days, it was a Super 8 camera, but then it was home video and shoot stuff. Uh, He loved the fact that I was documenting things and we didn't always have behind the scenes people. So, I mean, I've got some videos people have never seen. I don't know whether I have anything of David particularly, but of just the process of shooting that film. I got a lot of stuff and I don't even know what the legality is of showing it somewhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, It's amazing. I mean, a lot of stuff of Jim specifically talking to my camera about the process, you know, he loved the fact that I was, you know, I knew him and we worked together for years and that I was the guy shooting that, you know,
2: <laughs> you have your own little documentary. That's amazing. Oh, you got to do something with that. That's so cool. I'd love
3: to see that. I, I hope I can at some point. Yeah. I want to figure out a way to, to get it out into the world a little bit.
2: What was Jim's working relationship like with David? Cause they, they were saying earlier, they kind of seem very similar in a lot of ways. I can imagine them, them really hitting it off.
3: Yeah. I mean, it certainly seemed on the set that it was Wonderful, you know, and I don't know how much they kept in touch after the film was over. It wouldn't surprise me if they did, but I I don't really know that. But certainly on set, it was great. I mean, I think they tended to agree on most of what was going on. Well, uh, for instance, is that I don't think Jim in any way imagined there being music in this film. I I don't think he was going for that. But when David wanted to do music for the film, it suddenly became a bit of a musical, you know, suddenly a character would break into song, you know, and, and that changed the, certainly the feel of what I said th- what the direction I think Jim was going in. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think he was looking for it to be a musical.
2: If you got David Bowie and he, and he wants to,
3: wants to do his thing. Well, yeah. What are you going to, right. And David wanted to do music for it. And the, I mean, the music's great, you know, but now in terms of their relationship, I mean, as best I could certainly see, It was professional and friendly, and they they certainly seemed to be enjoying the silliness of working together, but David playing this kind of strong lead character who seemed to have these other intentions in some ways, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
4: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito. And I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parrish, from my new series, Parish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver.
0: Yeah!
4: I'm retired from a life. You know that. His business is failing. His house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger and we want to feel as if anything could happen. Gray is invited to drive for this man. He's invited to make money and he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do. I did what you told me to. And he's in a world over his head.
0: Now, let's go.
4: He will try to do what's right and seek justice.
0: Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Plus.
1: With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com incarwifi Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
2: What was David and Jennifer Connelly's uh, friendship like? Like, what was their, were they, sort of like, were they friends on set?
3: Well, you know, they certainly had to work closely together and play some kind of intimate stuff together. And obviously, she was 14 at the time. But he was playing a sort of a fantasy in her mind in a certain way, you know, a real coming of age kind of thing for her. I don't know whether we really know at the end of the film, we sort of indicate that these were all real things that happened to this, this character. But in a way, it was very metaphorical in its in its whole thing about this coming of age story for her. I feel like they work together incredibly well. I can't give you any insight on their direct relationship in terms of, you know, how how that was to work together. But it seemed like, as was typical with most of the things Jim did, and this was a massive undertaking, this particular project, I never felt that there was any kind of tension from anyone. You know, Jim, Jim tended to have a set where people were enjoying the work, you know, as we, as we got through it.
2: Oh, I mean, it, just, it looks like a blast. I mean, do you, do you remember seeing it all completed for the first time? Was it at the premiere?
3: Uh, the first time we saw the film was in Toronto. We might have been shooting Fraggle Rock. So talk about two extremes of different projects. Um <laughs> <It's true. laughs> You know, we were, we were sort of in the middle of the four years, the four or five years we did on Fraggle when Labyrinth came along. And I seem to recall Jim having a Toronto screening, which is where we did Fraggle, and, and all of us going to a theater and seeing it there. I mean, I was blown away by it. For me, I loved it immediately because I, I loved everything about it. From David, You know, I was also a big Rocky Horror fan. Oh my God, yeah. I felt like there were some parallels between Tim Curry's character in that and what David was doing, even though it was very, very different. But this powerful sort of figure with sort of this almost like sexual tension thing going on, there seemed to be some similarities. And I I loved everything about it.
2: (laughs) I can't tell you, I I can think of at least a dozen women in my life that say that their first crush was David Bowie in that movie.
3: Well, you know, I guess so. And it's really interesting. I do I do Comic-Cons these days quite often, and the number of people, the cosplayers who come through, dressed as the two characters, you know, the Sarah character and David's character, and oftentimes it's two women doing that. A lot of women dress as him in that film. You know, it's a very kind of an androgynous character, but a lot of his stuff was that way, you know.
2: Yeah, there are actually, I I have several friends who've just dressed up as Jareth for
3: Halloween too. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: (laughs) I mean, there's so many things that you've been involved with that that just mean so much for so many people. I mean, you know, of of course, obviously Kermit. I mean, how did you receive the news that you were, I don't even know what the word is, the phrase would be, to to now inhabit that character? Kermit, you mean? Yes. Yeah,
3: it was pretty shortly after Jim's, death. You know, we were all going through an incredible period of just down depression, mourning, you know, terrible, terrible thing. But it wasn't too long after that because Jim's family was still in the process of theoretically trying to make the deal work where he was selling his company to the Walt Disney Company, uh, which fell apart at that point. It didn't happen. But everybody was making a go of it. I mean, the plan was to go ahead with that. So Kermit needed to continue to exist. And from what I gather, although he and I never talked about it, Jim had, knowing that he was going into Disney, he was sort of like John Lasseter became. He was going to be this new mm. creative force within Disney. Um, many, many projects and ideas were being run by him for his thoughts. He was going to be the real a real creative force within Disney. And I think he felt that he might suddenly be in a position where he he simply didn't have the time to perform Kermit anymore, uh, and he'd been Kermit for thirty-five years at that point. So, rather than Kermit go away, and it wasn't like he wanted to hold open auditions, as was Jim's way of doing it. He wanted to pass it on to someone that he felt could handle it, I guess. And evidently, he felt that about me because he had mentioned it to a couple of people, to his wife Jane, and I think Frank Oz and a few other people, but a small group. That in the event that he was not able to continue to do it he was thinking about asking me if i would give it a shot jim was the only person who ever did kermit we we all did our characters and nobody else did our characters so to suddenly be told that was a big deal you know obviously and very scary uh, to me and and intimidating but i immediately said i would give it a try i mean i mean the way it was put to me was would you like to try it and i immediately said yes but it was an incredible honor and uh, just really scary at the same time, you know?
2: <laughs> I cannot even begin to imagine. I mean, what was it like for you when you were handed, I, I don't want to call him a puppet because that seems real disrespectful, but when, when you were handed Kermit yeah. for the first time, he was yours. What was that? Do you remember like, like having him in your hand for the first time and knowing that this was now a part of you?
3: I had stood in for Jim like once or twice. But, but I mean, that's, all that means is I put the puppet on while he did another puppet, and then he immediately took it back, and, you know, he would dub the lines later. So it felt like I'd never had the puppet on before. But really the first time I had any contact with the actual physical puppet after Jim's death and knowing that it was now up to me to try to make it work was very private. I mean, they actually uh, sent me a Kermit puppet um, within weeks after Jim died and we talked about this Wow! for me to begin to fiddle around with it. So it came to my home, you know, in a box, you know, and, um, <sighs> you know, I remember very, very specifically that when I took the puppet out of the box, it smelled like Jim. Wow. I mean, I don't even know what that means exactly. Jim didn't smell, but you know what I mean? You you have a sense, right? Yeah. You know, it was the last puppet that he had used, you know, we had worked together, just a few weeks before, I remember it so well. And I, I put the puppet on and I'm, I'm standing in my bedroom in front of a dresser mirror, you know. And I, I knew how to make a puppet work. You know, I'd done that a lot by then. So I remember holding it up to the mirror and having Kermit look at the mirror and sort of then as though he was looking at, we were looking at each other in the mirror, you know. And then, uh, you know, my hand turned Kermit's face toward me. And I really, it, it was uncanny. I got this sense of, it was almost like Kermit was saying to me, okay, well, go on, say something. You know, you've got it. you got to do the voice. And it completely freaked me out. I, I, I took the puppet off. I put the puppet in another room and I didn't go near it for about three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a very weird, weird kind of, you know, strange moment. And eventually I remember Brian Henson. Uh, I think it was Brian who got in touch with me and said, you know, how's it going? We sort of need to, it would be good for us if we could see something that you're doing, you know? (laughs) And I, so I put together a tape of me singing. I think it was not, it's not that easy being green. They sent me a track and I recorded my voice on top of it and uh, then shot it. I mean, I don't think I ever sounded exactly like Jim, but I realized quite early on that the most important part of this process was going to be to make sure Kermit, stayed who Kermit was, that the character needed to be consistent. Mm. And I mean, I just knew that. And the fortunate part for me was that I, at that point, i worked with Jim for a little over 12 years and beside him almost all the time when he was doing Kermit, doing other characters or assisting him with Kermit or something like that. And so I really had a sense of where Kermit came from, from within Jim. You know, that was super important. The things that were affectations of Jim's that were really Jim that became Kermit and how that seemed to happen. You know, So those were things I was able to recall uh, my own experience of that. And then I could have watched YouTube videos all day long of the work that Jim had done, and it would not have given me what I really needed, which was that interior you know, origination point from Jim. So that's really the only way it would have been possible.
2: I was going to say, knowing Jim, it seems to have been much more helpful than being any kind of impressionist or anything, too. You're right.
3: Well, exactly, exactly. And it's very easy to copy somebody sometimes. You, know, you can just copy what they do and, and do your impression of them. But I knew from doing my own characters, you because know, I'd done a number of my own characters by then, that to do that would mean that Kermit would become very stale very quickly. And he would just be a copy. He'd be, you know, be a parrot. And I didn't want him to be a clone of Jim. He needed to be based on that, but he needed to evolve. He needed to continue to grow. Otherwise, he wouldn't be viable as a character going forward.
2: I almost imagine be like a jazz player getting a lead sheet to a, to a jazz standard. You got the chords there. You got the basic structure. But then you veer off of that, and you make it your own, and you do your own thing. You put your own inflections
3: on it. It's a funny thing. I hadn't thought about it until you said it just then. The natural way that we would all make that statement is to say, You know, you start with the basis in something and then you make it your own. And and that's true. But really what it boiled down to was to start in the basis of Jim's Kermit, keep his influence a part of it, rather than make it my own. It's almost as though I was just trying to allow Kermit to continue to grow. And that really came in handy in the first couple of projects we did shortly after Jim's death. One of them was The Muppet Christmas Carol and the other was uh, Muppet Treasure Island, both were cases where I was sort of playing Jim, playing Kermit, but then Kermit was playing hmm. an additional role. It wasn't really Kermit, you know? He was um, other characters within those stories. So that was kind of a challenge too. It was like three times removed, you know?
2: <laughs> oh, I can only, I mean, we just watched Muppets Christmas Carol this year. I mean, I was I was actually thinking of that watching. it, like, oh my God, you're right. This is Kermit. As Bob, it's just Bob Cratchit, as Kermit, or wait a minute, now I know I'm confused.
3: Kermit <laughs> well, exactly. as Bob Cratchit, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it, that was my first really major thing as Kermit after Jim's death, and um, the, it was the right tone and the right type of project. And the Muppets were, I think, very well cast in that. Kermit was the right character to play that character, you know. <laughs> and you were or Beans as well, right? Bean Bunny, I was Bean. I was Rizzo as well. Rizzo with Gonzo is one of my guys, and yeah, many many things.
2: Bean, Bean, is my favorite in that, and I, I still I, I I get choked up to this day. Yeah. I first saw this movie when it came out, and I was like five years old. Whenever the camera pans over to to, to Bean Bunny and the when he's sleeping outside in oh, the yeah. cold, <laughs> yeah, I like oh, I can't I
3: can't handle that. To this, day, I'm 33 years old. I can't his little shivering thing. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, it's a nice little moment, but it kind of gets the point across, you know. <laughs>
2: God, how does that feel for you? I mean, these movies, you know, I mean, I'm sure you get this all the time in, in many different ways from people who are much more articulate than me. But I mean, these these movies, these characters, these moments, they're a huge part of my life and millions and millions of others. I mean, how does it feel to know that you've had that kind of impact on, on, on people? I mean, every year at Christmas, we watch this movie with my family, you know, my girlfriend, and it's just, it's really special for us. What's that like for you?
3: Yeah, it's a funny thing, you know, part of the reason why I love doing this the Comic-Cons is because I get to meet so many of the fans. You know, when we were doing this work over the years, we worked in a studio kind of in this vacuum. You know, we didn't have a live audience and you didn't Mm. see people. And pre-internet, you know, you got the feedback that you got, but it was a little bit different than there was no social media or anything like that. You don't know what people are thinking. You know what the reviewers are thinking, but that's about it. So it's gratifying to know that. There was a documentary done some years ago about George Harrison, and I believe Martin Scorsese Directed. It's a great documentary. Living in the Material World, one of my favorites. Love it. And forgive me, but I always get from Monty Python, I get Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam mixed up because of their names, not because of what they look like. It, it, I think it's Terry Gilliam who is in there being interviewed because all of that time, you know, the, the Monty Python's Flying Circus time and George Harrison's involvement with them and all that was going on at exactly the same time we were doing the Muppet Show in England. He makes the statement in there basically where he says it was a little arrogant on our part but we were doing what we wanted to do with almost no regard for the fans whatsoever it's like john lennon said you know (laughs) we we it it didn't matter whether anybody liked it we were going to do it anyway and that's actually it wasn't arrogant but that's exactly the way jim was jim did what he wanted to do and it just so happened that people responded to it you know he did a lot of things people didn't respond to I mean, Labyrinth was an immediate big success. It was, you know, it's been, it's become more of a cult success than it was an immediate success. And he would have loved that. But it was true of all of this work. And And I resonate with that to the extent that while I'm having this great opportunity to meet fans who love the work, it was. Purely for selfish reasons, you know. And, and it wasn't about money and it wasn't about fame. It was about doing this incredible thing and having the opportunity to do it, you know.
2: <laughs> dream come true, you know. How many people have a dream when they're, when they're a teenager and then get to actually do it? I mean, that is that is absolutely uh, unbelievable. I mean, I know some of it is, is luck, but a whole lot of it's talent.
3: And a lot of it is just plain luck, you know. It really is. I mean, I look back at it and you can, it's very easy to look back at scenarios and see how things fell into place. So you could say it's serendipity, or it's meant to be, and maybe it is. But it also is just interesting to see the pattern of how everything fell into place for me to end up in the right place at the right time. When Jim, I was the right age, he was looking for young people, he wanted like a person to come over and become a part of his core team, and I became that person. Could have been somebody else, you know, but it happened to be me. Right at the right time, you know?
0: at purdueglobal.edu.
4: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parrish, from my new series, Parrish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver.
0: Yeah!
4: I'm retired from life, you know that. His business is failing, his house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger. And we want to feel as if anything could happen. Gray is invited to drive for this man. He's invited to make money. And he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do. I did what you told me to. And he's in a world over his head.
0: Now, let's go!
4: He will try to do what's right and seek justice.
0: Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Plus.
1: With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com incarwifi fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
2: What is the, when, you, when you're going out and you're meeting fans at, at comic Cons? what's the most common thing that people say? Oh, just say, say this in so-and-so's voice. Is there a common thing that people come up to you and ask you to do?
3: people do ask me to do the voices and, and I, I actually rarely do it. I usually tell them, you know, I really, I really don't do the voices outside of when I was performing the characters, you know, uh, try to let people down. But I, I would say the most common thing they say is quite similar to what you were stating. And it's always great to hear it. And that is that this is such a huge part of their lives. You know, that it's, um, they usually have some memory of, a parent or a grandparent, or a time in their lives when the Muppets, for whatever mm. reason, might have meant something to them in particular. And I resonate with that because I was exactly the same way prior to working with Jim. You know, it was, um, it, it was a massive part of my life for a good nine or 10 years before any notion of ever doing it as a career came about, you know. So I know exactly what they feel. <laughs> There's a connection. I used to look at the Muppets as a kid. I didn't realize this at the time, but I know it now. I think the audience was looking at these characters as, you know, you sort of saw past them to the person who was performing them because they, because they were a unique aspect of whoever that performer was. You know, it was a particular performer. They didn't switch around characters. And that person would potentially be that character for their whole life if, as far as Jim was concerned. So the connection is through the puppets to the performers between the audience and the performer like any other performer you know it's like it might be through music to a musician you know it's a very similar kind of thing and jim was not extremely precious about the characters he he really seemed to look at at the muppet as the puppet you know the puppets were tools tools of his artistic expression like a paintbrush or or if he'd been a carpenter you know kermit might have been a hammer, you know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> or a guitar. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. You never
2: know. <laughs> wow, that's that's such an interesting way to put it. I never thought of that. I was going to ask you, and I know you're, you're going to think I'm a crazy person for asking this, but like what was your relationship like with the figures themselves? The fact that you had Kermit shipped to you like boggles my mind because I think, oh my God, it's just, it's the kind of thing that would be sent with like armed guards and in like some kind of special <laughs> truck like, you know, on loan from the Smithsonian or something. Like, did you have a special place for it? Did you, or was it like you just said, was it just a tool, and you just kind of put it over there when you were done?
3: And was uh, yeah, I kind of it? I, I, it was that. It's really interesting thing with puppeteers, and, and I'm sure there are ways to relate this to other art artists and the type of work they do with whatever the tools of their trade are. I had built so many characters, and when you start with a concept for a character and you build it from the inside out to be whatever it's going to be, that you always have that objective view of it, along with the subjective view from the point of view of the character. So I could look at Kermit differently when Jim was doing Kermit to a certain extent. I'll give you an example. We never talk to our characters. We don't relate to the characters like we sit there and talk to the puppets. You know, we we put them on and we do what we do and we have a great time doing it. We stay in character and they say cut and we keep going for 10 minutes, stuff like that. But it is all about just us doing a performance with the characters. We don't feel like we have a, a separate relationship with the characters per se. But I remember one time I walked on the set and Frank was doing Piggy. And for whatever reason, Miss Piggy looked at me and said, oh, hello, Steven. And it was so cool. <laughs> and, I, and I mean, by, by this point. By, she knows my name. Yeah. By this point, I had been working with the Muppets, at puppets forever. You know, I mean, I've been doing puppets for 20 years and with the Muppets for five. So, But it was still, there was something cool about, Miss Piggy speaking to me because Frank wouldn't normally do that. It's just something that came out of his mouth. You know, I happen to walk on the set, you know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I totally get that.
3: Yeah, I know what it feels like. You know, it's just not the normal way that I would look at it, you know. <laughs> it has been such a, a
2: joy talking. Before I let you go, I want to talk to you about the new series that you're doing, Cave In, featuring this amazing character, Weldon the IT guy, <laughs> an internet troll. Tell me tell me more about, about your new series.
3: So Weldon basically came about after I was no longer a part of the Muppets and I was thinking, well, you know, I, I know that to do this work from doing series over the years that if you walk away from doing it for a while, you, it's like getting back on a bicycle. You know, you can still ride, but it takes a minute to get your balance. So I thought, I want to look for something that that basically I can do on little to no budget that just keeps my skill set growing. You know what I mean? It keeps me sharp with the puppetry, the improv, and all that stuff. So that's how this came about. It seemed appropriate, you know. Well, it's really a return back to you were talking about this kids show with Otis thing that I did forty years ago. It's Very much the same kind of thing, only instead of people calling in on the telephone, they now call in on Discord. You know, this is via the internet. The basic point of the show was, is for this character to have exchanges with whoever's calling in. Therefore, most of the material just comes out of the conversation. And some of it gets really slow and boring. I used to go back and edit the shows after the live stream. What we post is a slightly tightened version most of the time, but that's the fun of it, you know? And and I've got this kind of, it's funny because certain people out there who watch this character have almost become cast members. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they, they call every month and they're almost a part of the show. So we expect for them to check in, you know, it is a real undertaking to do this uh, as simple as it is in concept. It actually, I overcomplicate it like crazy because I care about the production values on it. You know, you don't do what I did for 30, 40 years and then just, do something that's tacky I'm trying to do something that's got some production value to it so we do these production numbers that run in every show it can be anywhere from two to uh, we've done some 10 minute long narratives I have one puppet that I built which is Weldon so Weldon is um, plays all the roles in all the production numbers we do if there are multiple characters I've always loved shooting against green screen and what can be done in terms of, of placing characters you know into scenarios, into sets, into places. So that's a lot of what we're doing. I'm lucky to be working with a young man named Liam Nelson, who uh, has his own production company, uh, New Haven Productions. And so the studio we work in is a tiny little space, uh, but we're able to do some pretty ambitious things in here. (laughs) And and I'm loving it. I mean, it's a fun little character to do. And I'm also developing some other things too, but it takes a while for those things to get off the ground. Some of it is with former colleagues who I've worked with who really want to work together. And uh, some other ideas that will be probably bigger shows, but also bigger shows cost more money. So, you know, we have to pull all that together, you
2: know? <laughs> oh, it is it is hysterical. I, I watched a few episodes before speaking to you and it's it's so great. I really love it. I'm, I'm so excited to see what you're going to do next also. That's so
3: exciting. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, and I'm glad we talked about it. And, um, you know, I, I'm really mostly doing it as a learning experience. And, and by the way, one of the, I mean, it's not just the puppetry. I'm, I'm doing everything. I'm writing music, I'm playing the music and recording it. Any, any music you hear on there, I do. And, and all of the editing and, and most of the writing, although I have Jim Lewis, a former colleague who works for the Muppets, is helping me produce it. So I've been around those things my whole life, but I'm really learning the practicality of doing it now. Uh, which is fun, you know, hard and fun. <laughs> I was
2: gonna say that sounds like an absolutely mammoth undertaking.
3: It is, but uh, I, I, we you know we do one per month. We do the last Friday of every month. We do a live stream per month, and I I would not be able to pull anything more than that together because I'm doing it virtually all myself.
2: <laughs> I just want to thank you so much for your time today. Before I let you go, I I have one final question. You're gonna hang up on me. Uh, <laughs>
3: <laughs> What's Kermit's favorite David Bowie album? Oh my god. How would I possibly well wow. <laughs> There's got to be a great answer to that, right? Wow, I'm trying to figure out what it is. I have to climb inside Kermit's head for a minute. I think uh it might uh, album I don't know, but the song might be Aladdin Sane. I, <laughs> I always I always I always say it like that, Aladdin Sane because I know that was the fun. But Kermit loved fun, so that could easily be it. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, when we um, when we were doing around the labyrinth, I guess uh, after labyrinth, David's son, who was Zoe, but I think he went with Joey in the end, worked at the Creature Shop for a while. I don't know whether you knew that.
2: Oh, that's right. Oh yeah, my gosh, he. I don't know. He's a
3: filmmaker, right? Uh, yeah, I think he is. And but for a, for a number of years there, I believe he. I don't think I ever actually met him, but he was working in the Creature Shop, presumably working on building, fabricating stuff. You know.
2: <laughs> well, that's a funny full circle there. Wow.
3: Yeah, yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> but yeah, I was. I it was. It really hit me very hard when when I heard that he had passed away. You know, it was. It was. um just you know he was just he was just such a part of my life and he was always there and we always and we worked together and they're always even though you know after that point i'd see him once in a while but and we were super close friends but it felt like there was a connection and i really i really mourned over that a little bit
2: off the record is a production of iHeartRadio. if you liked what you heard please subscribe and leave us a review